Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Lessons Learned. Amen. Well, the story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, it's one of the most famous stories in all of history. It's called the Exodus. And for the last 3,500 years of, of history, the Exodus, the Exodus of Israel from Egypt has shown to the entire world that our God is an awesome God. Around 1447 BC, right around there, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you're new to the Bible, Jacob, another word for Jacob is Israel. So the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were still around 1447 BC. They were still living down in Egypt and they were still serving the Egyptians as their slaves. And so after spending so much time down in Egypt, scholars believe that the children of Israel, they grew to about two to three million people. And so when Moses comes on the scene and he goes to Pharaoh with God's message and Moses says, Pharaoh, God said, let my people go. You remember the story how Pharaoh hardened his heart and he said, no. Why did he say no? Probably lots of reasons. Arrogance is at the top of the list. But he knew that with this many slaves in his land, that if he let all these slaves leave, it would cripple the Egyptian economy. But how many of you know that God has a way of getting our attention when we're being stubborn? Right? I was hoping more people would say amen to that, so I'm going to say that one again. How many of you guys know that God has a way of getting our attention when we're being stubborn? You know that? Okay. And so he had no problems. No, even though Pharaoh thought he was all that, God had no problems getting Pharaoh's attention, and it came by way of ten plagues. The last plague finally broke the man. It was the last plague that God got Pharaoh's undivided attention. And on the night of that last plague, you remember, the death angel flew over Egypt. And as the death angel flew over Egypt, when he looked down at the homes in Goshen, Egypt, where the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived, he saw the blood, you remember this, on the doorposts, of the, of the children of Israel's homes. And that a beautiful picture of the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross way back 1500 BC. And when the death angel saw the blood of the lamb, he passed over the homes. He did not bring judgment. It's still the same truth today. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have the blood of Jesus applied to the doorframe of your heart, so to speak, then you don't have to worry about God's judgment. You don't have to worry about God's condemnation because in the name of Jesus, you are saved. And by the blood of Jesus, you are saved. That's the truth of the gospel. It's always been a truth. But when the death angel flew over the homes of the rest of the Egyptians, there was no blood. And so he entered in and he brought judgment. And you remember the last plague was he killed all the firstborn sons in Egypt. When Pharaoh woke up the next morning and he saw that his firstborn son was dead, he cried out in anguish. He summoned Moses and he said, Moses, get out. Get out of my land. 
And so the children of Israel began to hastily make their exit, their exodus from um, Egypt. And so they began to travel east, and they make it all the way to the Red Sea. I wanted to show it to you on the map of where scholars believe they went. If you notice the Red Sea in the bottom right uh, corner of of, of your map, you need to know that the Red Sea has two arms that extend. Uh, extend upwards. There's a northwestern arm called the Gulf of Suez. There's a northeastern arm called the Gulf of Aqaba. And scholars believe around 1447 BC that the waters of the Gulf of Suez there flowed even farther north. And somewhere in that northern area of the Gulf of Suez is where the children of Israel camped out. While, were there, while, while they were in that area, somebody shouted, look, and they all looked back, and in the distance, they saw the Egyptian army, and the Egyptian army was closing in. Now, you would, have, you would think, right, that after 10 devastating plagues, that Pharaoh would have given it up, but he still decides to harden his heart. He still decides to pursue the children of Israel to try to bring them back into slavery. How many of you know that God hates slavery? Always has, always will. God hates slavery. And so what happened in the story? Well, put yourself in the sandals of the children of Israel. In front of them, it's the Red Sea. Behind them, it's the Egyptian army. And most of them, no doubt, thought they were trapped, but they weren't trapped. Hey, this was a perfect scenario for God to show off his glory. And so God did just that. Check out what God said to Moses in Exodus 14. God said, tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. And they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed. It's been displayed now for 3,500 years. Everybody knows this story. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots, and his charioteers. And so around that time, if you remember the story, remember God had sent them a pillar of cloud by day to lead the children of Israel throughout their wanderings. And that pillar of cloud all of a sudden shifted and went to the back of the camp of Israel. And now there was a pillar of cloud separating the camp of Israel from the Egyptian army, obstructing the view of the Egyptian army. All the Egyptians could see now was a big, massive black cloud. And it was at that time that Moses lifted his staff toward the Red Sea. And the Lord caused this strong east wind, right, to push back the waters of the Red Sea. All night long, this strong east wind blew and blew and blew. And so what was the result? The result was that once where there was deep water, now there was a path of dry ground all the way to the other side. Moses says, let's go. And so the children of Israel, two to three million of them, go down into the basin on this dry path, on this dry ground. They go down into the basin of the Red Sea. Now, you got to understand, don't believe the theological liberals of the day. And you, how many of you guys know you can't believe everything you watch on TV? Right? They have a different agenda. 
They don't care about this book. They think it's just filled with fairy tales. And they're going to have a rude awakening when they take their last breath on this earth because they chose not to exalt the God of Israel. The truth of the matter is, you can't believe what the liberals say. The liberals say they just walked through some kind of marshland, maybe called the Reed Sea or something or another. Nothing could be further from the truth because the Bible says when they went down into the pathway that there was a wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left. Can you imagine if you were there? Can you imagine if you were walking through and you saw the wall of water? I wonder if they saw any fish going by, right? I wonder if they saw any sharks or whatever. I don't even know if there's sharks in the Red Sea. I wonder if any kids try to put their hands in and the moms were like, don't do that. You know, keep your hands at your side. Walk, let's get out of here, right? Now, when the Egyptians finally figured out what was going on, because of their arrogance, because they thought they were all that, they decided to pursue the children of Israel and they went down, the Egyptian army went down into that dry pathway. Well, by that time, the children of Israel were safe on the other side. And God said to Moses, lift up your hands. And Moses turned around and he lifted up his hands. And at that time, the waters of the Red Sea came crashing down on the army of the Egyptians. And the next day, all the children of Israel could see were the bodies of the of their enemies washed up on shore. What a miracle. And what an awesome God that we serve. If you believe that story and you want to give God the glory right now for that story, let him know, right? Let him know how awesome he is. I think it's so important, ladies and gentlemen, that we as his people, let him know from time to time how awesome he is because the vast majority of the world doesn't care. The vast majority of the world right now is sleeping in. They don't care about the God who created them. They don't care that he sent his son to die for them. And they're living for themselves. But God has called out a remnant. And he's called you and I to give glory to his name. And so it's incumbent upon us to go back to the word of God and to read these stories and to authentically, from true, pure hearts, give God the glory and the praise that he deserves in any generation, in any age. So that's what we do. That's why we're here. That's why you got up this morning on Labor Day weekend and came to the house of God. It's not to hear another sermon. It's not even to sing songs or watch a performance. It is one reason only, to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's our Lord. So God has been, had been so good to Israel, so good. But how did they respond to his goodness? We're going to find out not very well. Fast forward 1,500 years or so from the time of the Exodus, you come to the first century AD. Paul knew the story that I just told like the back of his hand. He was a rabbi. And so he wanted to pull from the story that I just told and other stories in the Torah the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, he wanted to pull some of those stories out in order to teach the believers at Corinth some lessons. He wanted the church, a church just like ours, to learn some lessons from the ancient Israelites. So that's where we're going today. So check it out, chapter 10, verse 1. 
Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. That's that pillar of cloud, remember, by day, the pillar of fire by night. By the way, can you imagine two, two to three million people camped in tents around the tabernacle? It says at night, the pillar of fire would hover over the tabernacle. Can you imagine looking out your tent and seeing that? Can you imagine during the day seeing the pillar of cloud, which they said that they were under the cloud. When you're in a hot desert, when you're in the wilderness, what do you do when the cloud moves? You move with it. You don't want the hot desert sun beating on your head. So God was so good to them. God kept providing for them. It says in verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. In other words, they identified with Moses as their leader, like we through the waters of baptism today identify with Jesus as our leader. It says in verse three, they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank, verse four, the same spiritual drink for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So let's recap. Again, God, you're going to hear me say this over and over this morning. God had been so good to Israel. He gave them a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He parted the Red Sea, and that led to their freedom. Not only that, he gave them their food, which was a daily supply of manna. Scholars did the math. You know, an omer of manna for every person every day, a double amount on the Sabbath day so they don't have to gather it on the Sabbath day. And so scholars figured it out and they came to a number that God provided, listen to this, 4,500 tons of manna every day to feed two plus million people. He gave them their drink which was water from the rock to quench their thirst. Over and over and over again, God showed up and God took care of his people. Now I've got to do a quick side note because Paul talks about about a rock that followed them. And so the Bible records at least twice how God provided water from a rock for his people. The first time he provided the water from the rock, you can read it later, it's in Exodus chapter 17, And at that time, he commanded Moses to strike the rock with the same rod that he lifted up over the Red Sea to strike that rock. And of course, Moses did that. They were in the area of Rephidim and rivers of water came gushing out of that rock and quenched the the thirst of two million plus people. But the second time God provided, at least the second time that the Bible records, that God provided water from a rock, it was another time. You can read it later in Numbers chapter 20. And at that time, God said to Moses, speak to the rock. And about half of you probably know the story that the children of Israel, this is their MO, they're griping and whining and complaining. And so Moses gets in the flesh, and instead of doing what God said and just speaking to the rock, he struck the rock, he yelled at all the people, he called them all a bunch of rebels, The miracle still occurred, water came gushing out, but God took Moses to the side and they had a little chat. God had to let Moses know, in essence, that Moses, you misrepresented me. You got in the flesh. But I believe there was a greater reason. By the way, he said, you're not going in the promised land. 
But I believe there was a greater reason Moses messed up the type. The Bible says that the rock was a picture of Christ. Christ only had to be struck one time, not twice. God said the first time, strike the rock. The second time, different occasion, just speak Moses to the rock. But Moses disobeyed God and he struck the rock. But that's not my point. My point today is that there was two separate occasions in which God provided water from a rock. And so some of the ancient rabbis from these two different occasions came up with an ancient legend. They said that the rock that God used to provide water for his people was the same rock on both occasions. And so back in Exodus chapter 17, there in Rephidim, they said there was that rock, but then in Numbers chapter 20 in Kadesh, they said it was the same rock. And so people over the years would say, well, how in the world can it be the same rock if it's two separate occasions, two different locations? And so some of the rabbis actually said, because the rock followed them. And my response to that is like, uve, right? No. The rock followed them. And so they actually taught that there was this rock that mysteriously followed the children of Israel throughout their desert wanderings. I mean, kind of like, you know, while the children of Israel were moving, the rock was moving behind them. But whenever they stopped, the rock would stop. I wonder, according to the legend, if, you know, you're walking and all of a sudden you look back, if you could see the thing moving. And I wonder if, you know, you could kind of like stop and it stops and then you move and you look real quick to see if the thing's still moving or not. Now, Paul did not buy into this legend. He didn't buy into fairy tales, but he used the legend of the ancient rabbis to make a point there in your Bibles. Look at the end of verse four. He says, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was who? Christ. You see, there wasn't a literal stone on the ground that followed the children of Israel throughout their wilderness wanderings. Listen, but Christ the rock followed them wherever they went. Now, isn't it cool? I think this is so cool. We're talking about 1447 BC, and yet the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul says that Christ followed them at the end of verse 4. In that time, you see what that means? That means that Jesus of Nazareth didn't get his start in a manger in Bethlehem, but rather that Jesus Christ, the Lord, has always existed. He is the eternal, uncreated Son of God, and he was there with the Jews in the wilderness, and he was providing for their every need. And so the rock, that stone on the ground there in the wilderness, two different stones, but they, they both represent Jesus Christ, the rock of ages, the one who on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, he stood when everybody's being completely quiet. All of a sudden, Jesus on that eighth day when they acted out the whole story that I just told you, Jesus shouts out there in the temple courts in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, if anybody says that today, we're going to put them in a straitjacket and send them somewhere. But Jesus Christ, the Lord, stood up when everybody was quiet, and he says, if anybody thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What does that mean? That means that the answer that you're looking for today, 
Maybe you just came to church for the first time. Maybe the first time in a long time. Maybe you're kind of on the fence. Maybe you're a little skeptical. Maybe you're not sure about Christianity. Well, listen to the message of Jesus Christ. He says, are you thirsty? Don't go follow religion. Come to me and I will deeply satisfy the thirst down deep in your soul. The message of Jesus Christ to some of you today is this, I will give you a joy unspeakable and full of glory. I will give you a peace that surpasses all understanding and you'll never doubt again that I exist. But you gotta humble yourself. You gotta humble yourself. You gotta turn from your sins the best way you know how and you need to go to Christ and let his living waters, who is the Holy Spirit, by the way, deeply satisfy your soul. God has been so good to Israel. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, parting the Red Sea, manna from heaven, water from the rock. How did they respond to his goodness? Look at verse 5. But with most of them, understatement of the year, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Okay, Paul is now going to a different story. You don't have to turn there, I'll just tell it to you. He's talking now about a story that took, takes place in Numbers 14. Not so long after the Exodus, not so long after the parting of the Red Sea, not so long after Moses comes down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, not too long after that, the children of Israel made it to the borders of the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. They were there just south of the land in an area called Kadesh Barnea, and it was time for them to, to possess the land that God had given to them. By the way, quick side notes, it's not in my notes. But God, let's listen, listen to this. I hope, I hope you really believe this. God made an eternal covenant with Israel. He gave them a piece of real estate. And he, it's called an eternal covenant. And that piece of, Israel, of real estate belongs to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's, it's God's gift to them. God Almighty, our creator, you can't fight against God. Let them have their piece of real estate. It'll be so much better in your life if you support Israel, pray for them every day, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and just let them have their land. God will bless people for letting them have their land. And so, getting back to the message here, they were there at the land. They're ready to go in, but what do they do? They decide to send some spies in first to check out the land. Twelve spies go into the land. They come back. Two to three million people. Twelve spies. Ten of them stand up to the podium, so to speak, and they give the report. And they said to all these people, the children of Israel, hey, the land, it's everything we thought. It flows with milk and honey. But. Now, how many of you guys know that but is, is, is just not a good word, right, for more, more reasons than one, right? But, but the people are too strong for us. Negative confession. The cities are too large, too fortified for us. Negative confession. 
the towns, they're too big. The descendants of Anak are there. The giants are in the land. Negative confession. We're like grasshoppers compared to those people. Negative confession. We're not able to go in. And because of the cowardly comments, everybody gets all upset. Two to three million people now are weeping. The other two spies, Joshua and Caleb, is the reason why many of you named your kids with those names. They stand up now, so to speak, at the podium. And they said, don't listen to the negative confession. Don't listen to the cowardly comments. Right? Here's what they said. God is on our side. God's called us to do this. We need to ignore our fears and we need to face our fears and we need to overcome in the power that God supplies. We can do this. We can break our enemies like, like breaking a piece of matzo bread. Come on, let's go, let's go for it, right? And so what was the people's response to Joshua and Caleb? Kill them. <laughs> We're gonna stone you to death. We don't wanna hear your positive confession. We wanna hear the negative confession. By the way, I don't buy into the theology that you can just make a positive confession and, and, and get whatever you want. But I believe that when God has revealed to you through his word or through his Holy Spirit that he wants you to do something, that you need to start making positive confessions about what God told you to do and you need to go forward and do what God said you, for you to do. And so let's stone Joshua and Caleb. And in the middle of all that chaos, all of a sudden the Shekinah glory of God comes and it stops over the tabernacle. Everyone's like, uh-oh, here comes the judge, right? And this is what God said from the Shekinah glory to Moses, how long will these people reject me? Some of you here this morning need to hear that right there. How long will you reject the Lord? How long Will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? All the signs, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, parting the Red Sea, water from the rock, manna from heaven. But in spite of all those signs from God, Israel rejected God. Ancient Israel rejected God. They gave in to fear. Ladies and gentlemen, fear is not your friend. Right now, some of you are making all your decisions based on fear. That's pulling you away from the Lord. They chose fear over faith, and all that was left for the children of Israel was judgment. If you listen to the voice of fear in your life, you say, who, me? Yes, you. If you listen to the voice of fear in your life, all that's going to be left for you is judgment. God says, choose faith over fear. Choose my word over the dread that you feel, over whatever you're feeling that dread over. And so what was the judgment for the children of Israel? They had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They missed out on living in the promised land. And as it says at the end of verse 5, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That means everybody 20 years old and up died. Can you imagine for the next 40 years, funerals every day? All these people, because they chose fear over faith, they died in the wilderness, except for two guys. And that was, of course, Joshua and Caleb. And so some of you no doubt are thinking, what does that have to do with us? Are you listening to me? 
everything. Everything. These aren't just some bedtime stories for people who lived a long time ago. This is for us. You say, how do you know? Look at verse 6. Now these things became, what's the next two words? Our examples. To the intent that we should not lust or desire after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become, you may want to underline the word, idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit, you may want to underline, sexual immorality. There it is again. It's amazing when you go verse by verse how often this comes up. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ. Notice it's Christ because Christ existed back then. He's always existed. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor, verse 10, complain. You may want to underline complain. As some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. God had been so good to Israel. But how did they respond? Did they enter the promised land? No. Actually, what they did is they gave into idolatry, verse 7. They gave into immorality, verse 8. And they gave into complaining, verse 10. We're going to briefly look at each of those points, each of those sins. Let's go back to verse 7. He says, and do not become, what's the word? Idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. So if you're taking notes, just three points today. Here's your first point. The first point is, don't give in to idolatry. <laughs> Worship Christ. Don't give in to idolatry. Worship Christ. What story was Paul referring to here? He's referring to the story found in Exodus 32. The children of Israel camped at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain. You guys remember what he's doing up there? <laughs> Receiving the law of God. Receiving the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there, in their minds, the children of Israel, in their minds, you know, He's delayed in his coming. We don't even know if he's coming back. And so what did the children of Israel do? They went to Aaron, Moses' um, helper. And they said to Aaron, hey, we don't know if Moses is ever coming back. And so we want you, Aaron, to make us gods that are going to lead us. And how did Aaron respond? Man, I so wish that Aaron would have had the same spirit as Joshua or the same spirit as Caleb. But instead of that, he said, hey, all you men and women, I want you to bring me your earrings. And yes, guys wore earrings back then. Bring me your earrings, all your gold earrings. And so he took all the gold from the earrings. He melted it down. And with a, a fashioning tool, you remember what Aaron did? He actually fashioned a golden calf. When all the people saw the golden calf, all of a sudden there was a big shout out in the camp. And the shout went something like this, Israel, this is the God that led you from Egypt. Can you believe this? After all that God had done for them. 
And so the next thing you know, Aaron's building an altar for their new God. And the people are sacrificing animals and bringing animal sacrifices to a golden calf. They're worshiping an idol. And then the worship service turns into a party. And the party turns into, if you go back and read it later, a drunken orgy. And so what you need to understand is that word play there in, in the verse we just read, it's a euphemism for sexual immorality. Now, don't you love God's timing? Right in the middle of the drunken orgy, here comes Moses coming down Mount Sinai with the two tablets containing the Ten Commandments. And Moses looks down on God's people. These were God's people. Just like the world today looks at the church as supposedly God's people. And they see the junk that we're doing in the church. Leaders in the church. 400 pastors that had to resign last Sunday because their names are on a website so they can commit adultery behind their wives' backs. What do you think the world thinks about us, church? And Moses sees the drunken orgy going on. What does he do? He takes the Ten Commandments and he slams them down on the ground at the foot of Mount Sinai. Then he goes up to the golden calf. And this is probably the spirit, more of the spirit that we need today. He walks up to the golden calf and he puts it in the fire. He grounds it to powder. He takes the golden powder and he, he spreads it across the water and he makes the people drink it. Drink your God. Somebody's got to stand up for righteousness. I understand nobody's perfect, right? I understand that nobody will ever be perfect. But we as a church have a standard that we have got to keep in this world if anybody's ever going to take us seriously. We have a standard we've got to keep. In private and in public. And if you're a fake in private, God will never use you in public. And Moses broke the Ten Commandments. He was so upset, and he made him drink the water. How in the world did they respond to God's goodness? They committed idolatry. Now, today, especially in the West, in some parts of the world, I understand people still do this, right? But today in the West, we don't usually carve out a figurine out of wood or gold or stone and bow down to it, right? In, in 1500 BC, idolatry came in the shape of a golden calf, but today it's more likely to come in the shape of a girlfriend or a boyfriend or some sport or hobby or some position at work or some cool car. You see, you don't have to bow down to a little figurine in order to commit idolatry. All you've got to do is let your heart become more passionate for anyone or anything other than the living God. Right? That's the truth, right? Why do you think the Bible says, guard your heart for out of it come the issues of life? This is what we've got to watch out for, Christians. And if your heart becomes more passionate for anyone or anything outside of the living God, then you are just as guilty of idolatry as the children of Israel in 1447 BC. What's the alternative? 
Worship Christ. Not with lip service, with your heart. Fall in love with Christ. Make him the Lord of your life. Just like the sun, the S-U-N, is the center of our solar system and all the planets revolve around the sun, so let the sun, the S-O-N, be the center of your life and let everything in your life revolve around Jesus Christ. That's the call for you and the church. Not nominal Christianity. Not half-hearted service to the Lord. Right? Everything in your life needs to revolve around Jesus Christ. Why? The time is short. And so we've got to be serious about our walk with the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The love you have for him has got to be the greatest love. And so this week, right now, if you'll just be honest before the Lord, and if you know that your number one passion or your heart is not the Lord, then spend time with Jesus Christ. Get into his presence. Repent of your sin. Get real before the Lord. And let him show up. And let him fill you with his Holy Spirit. And revive that heart inside of us. Don't give in to idolatry. Worship Christ. But look at verse 8. Nor let us commit sexual immorality. As some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. And so your next point, if you're taking notes, is don't give in to sexual immorality. Be pure. See, the world laughs at that. You watch TV for five minutes, and you know that it flies in the face of what's on the screen today. But we're God's people. Listen, either get in or get out. This is the standard that God is holding out for us, and the only way we can achieve it is the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The only way we're going to achieve that is if we understand we can never achieve it in and of our own strength. That's why we got to be on our face before the Lord. That's why we have to be filled with his spirit. That's why we have to be abiding in Christ so that we have that supernatural power of God to say yes to righteousness and no to sin. And so be pure. I have no problem with saying be pure. As I said in verse 7, that word play means sex play. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because you know if you've been with us since May, Paul talks about this over and over and over again. Why? It's an issue in the church of Corinth. And so any sex, sexual activity outside of marriage is sexual immorality according to God. Sex is a beautiful gift from God. He's given it to people who are in a covenant of marriage. And by the way, we should honor our spouses not just in our actions, but in our thoughts, guys, in our hearts, Again, the only way that's going to happen is if the Holy Spirit's in charge of your life. And so it's so clear in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that people who habitually, habitually engage in sexual immorality, listen, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so God has been so good to us. Why would we respond in any other way? But here's the problem. Some of you have been hearing this for months. 
as we've been making our way through 1 Corinthians, and some of you are still engaging in sex outside of marriage. So I've got a question for you as your pastor. Okay, how long will you ignore the voice of God? Why are you still living with your boyfriend? Why are you still living with your girlfriend? You say, well, we're living on separate sides of the house, Pastor Mike. We're not having sex, I promise. Well, number one, don't, don't, don't even talk to me about whether you're having sex or not, okay? I, I'm just a guy. Talk to the Lord and move out. You say, we can't afford to move out. That's fear. You're standing at the edge of the promised land. God says, I want you to trust me. I want you to keep my word. Go into the promised land, and then I'll show up, and then I'll provide. He's not going to show up, and he's not going to provide as long as you're still living in the house. you got to get up, man, be a man, and leave. Go through six sessions of marriage counseling with Pastor Bob and marry the girl, but get it right before the Lord. Why are you still tempting Christ? And that's, uh, that leads us to our next verse in verse 9. Nor let us tempt Christ. Don't use grace as an excuse. As some of them also tempted and they were destroyed by the serpents. Nor complain. As some of them also complained and they were destroyed by the destroyer. So if you're taking notes, here's your third point. Don't complain, be content. Now, this is the part of the sermon where I got really convicted this week. Because I've been known a time or two to complain, just ask my wife. And I gotta repent just like you gotta repent. And so after wandering in the wilderness for a very long time, Numbers 21, Paul takes another story from the Pentateuch. Numbers chapter 21. And he says that the children of Israel, right, as you read through Numbers 21, you find out the children of Israel getting really upset because they've been out in this wilderness for so long. So they began to gripe and complain. It's their MO if you read through the story of the Exodus. And it says in Numbers 21, verse 5, they said to Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there's no food. Can you hear him whining here? There's no food. There's no water. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. Can you believe they're complaining about manna from heaven? I mean, how else do you explain manna? 4,000, 4, what did I say earlier? 4,500 tons every day on the ground of the wilderness. You say, why do they call it manna? Well, they picked it up and they said, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it in the Hebrew? And they eat it. And by the way, it's got all the nutrients that you need to sustain you for you to be healthy. And you know what they're doing? They're complaining about God's gift. Whining and complaining. So what did God do in response to their ungrateful attitude? He brought, listen, discipline. Snakes came into the camp. You remember the story? Some of you women hate snakes. And the snakes began to strike hundreds and hundreds of them. And a bunch of people fell down and died. You remember the whole story where Moses had, God told him, you know, make the, um, the, the bronze serpent lift it up. And when they look at the bronze serpent, then they'll be saved from dying. And many people did that and they were saved. 
So I don't have time to tell the whole story, but the, the point here is, is that they were whining and griping and complaining, and God showed up with discipline. And so the question I have this morning for all of us is, are we chronic complainers? Do you whine too much? Just be honest, okay? You, 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 you can have this attitude of, I'm not gonna listen to this, right? Or you can have this attitude of, okay, Lord, this is an area I really gotta get better at as a child of God. And so are you always whining? I don't like my job. I don't like where I live. I don't like this food, honey. Don't say that. Please don't say that. <laughs> or God will discipline you through your wife. <laughs> I don't get paid enough. It's hot outside. So guilty right here. It's too hot. Or in the winter, it's too cold. She hurt my feelings. I don't want to go to school. Right? We're God's people and we complain and we complain and we complain. Did you know that if you have a roof over your head and regularly have food on your table, that you're better off than 93% of the world's population. Some Americans like under 30 who've never heard anything like that and you think that all the whole world lives like us, please go with Pastor Jacob on a missions trip next year. Because we are in a bubble in America. I want to say that again in case some of you were tuned out. If you have a roof over your head and regular food on your table, you are better off than 93% of the world's population. What are we complaining about? If you own a pair of shoes, you are better off than 75% of the people in our world. What's the alternative to complaining? It's contentment. Look at what Paul wrote to the Philippians. He says, I have learned. That's, you gotta learn this, okay? And in other words, it's a daily decision. Just because you didn't complain yesterday doesn't mean you're exempt from complaining today. I have learned to be content in whatever situation I am in. Why, Paul? If you skip down to verse 13, he says, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's so good, isn't it? Paul learned that in every single situation, I can be content. Why? Because he knew that Christ was with him in every situation. And so when things are going really good in the Apostle Paul's life, he's content. When things are going really bad, the bottom falls out, you know, he's getting beat, 39 lashes, he's just as content. You say, that's impossible. No, it's not impossible because Paul could do, could do all things through Christ who gives him strength. And so what we have to do, listen to this, don't, don't, don't let your mind wander here. Please listen right here, okay? What we have to do is to be aware of Christ's presence in our lives and then just be content in the good times and the so-called bad times because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, right? Here's another thing you can do in order to stop complaining and that is start counting your blessings, as soon as you're tempted to complain about whatever, just, just stop yourself, exercise some self-discipline with the help of the Holy Spirit, and then begin to count your blessings. What I started doing about eight months ago, and it's kind of revolutionized my prayer life, is that I enter now into his gates 
with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. That means every day when I go before the Lord in the morning, I begin with thankfulness and a thankful heart. And so what I do is I go back to the previous day. I start in the morning mentally and I go through the whole day and I say, thank you, Lord, for that. And thank you for that. And man, you showed up there. Thank you so much for that. I I even thank him for sometimes lunch. I thank him for my beautiful wife. I thank him for my, my three girls who are all walking with the Lord. I thank God for you guys and your enthusiasm for Christ. I thank God that more and more people are entering into the core group and our church is getting stronger and more healthy. I have so much to be thankful for that as soon as I start saying, it's too hot, I gotta shut up and start thanking God for all he's doing in my life. Count your blessings. Let's look at verses 11 through 15 and we'll be done. He says, now all these things happened to them, ancient Israel, as, what's the word? Examples. And they were written for our admonition, our instruction, the church, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So as soon as you have this idea, I'm above this, I don't need to hear this, I'm fine. I could never fall. Um, Really, really, really lean on the Lord because you will fall. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. You say, Pastor Mike, you don't know what I'm going through. It's so hard. It's so difficult. It's so unique. Um, With all due respect, it's not. It's common to man. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people throughout history, God's people have gone through exactly what you're going through. It's common to man. Hey, but here's the good news. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. That's a promise to take to the bank. But with the temptation will always, will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Literally in the Greek, stand up underneath it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as the wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. And so, in closing, okay, God is sovereign. That means greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That means that all authority has been given to Christ in heaven and on earth. And Christ in me, the hope of glory, right? So, The Bible says, I believe it's James, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted from God. God does not tempt his people. Who tempts his people? Satan, the enemy. One of his millions and millions of demons out there. But you gotta understand that God is sovereign over demons. And so in God's sovereignty, what does he do? He oversees temptations that the enemy brings our way. And he will never, ever, ever allow you to be tempted more than you're able to handle as you lean on the Lord. And so does that mean that you're going to be free from temptation for the rest of your life? No. My experience, every day, every single day, bam, 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 bam. And that's why every single morning I got to be on my knees before the Lord. And so he's promised, as I am sovereign and I'm overseeing you, and the enemy is tempting you, I will never allow you to be tempted more than you're able. In fact, I will always 
give a way of escape. Did you know that God always, you got to look for it, but God will always, always, always give you a way of escape. And the number way, one way, as the worship team comes forward, the number one way that God gives us a way of escape is not what we think. It's not that we are able to run away, though we should run away many times, especially when it comes to sexual immorality. Like Joseph, we should run, right? But, but a lot of times, the way the Lord provides the way of escape, it's his power inside of us. The power that we tap into when we're spending time with him and hanging out with him and abiding with him. And then all of a sudden, it's not, we're living a Christian life in our own strength. Look at me. No, it's, I can't do this on my own. I so, God, need you. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Empower me, God. Give me that supernatural power so that I can accurately represent you. And then all of a sudden now you have tapped into a, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And now when, when the world tries to tempt you, now all of a sudden the way of escape is you can stand up underneath it because you are walking in the victory and the power of Jesus Christ. But as soon as you become, you have an attitude of, I can do this on my own. The enemy will eat you up. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.